becoming simply a technician. There's no feeling, there's no drama, there's no passion. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bot? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out and enjoy a song? It's about time in a film nothing happened. What a brave choice a director made. What a, what a pioneer this guy is. Let's do nothing. Do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. Is this where I go to be a star? This is where you go to sacrifice, learn your craft, and work hard. Movies. Mm -hmm. Well, let's yeah. talk movies, okay? Pick this up. Control sound. Roll camera. Speed. Yeah, Action kids. Action kids. Welcome everyone to the Scene by Scene podcast. Uh, this is a film breakdown and analysis podcast. I'm Joe. And I'm Justin. And on today's episode, we're going to be breaking down uh, Fritz Lang's 1927 masterpiece, Metropolis. Is it a masterpiece? <laughs> well, I, th I think I think we'll kind of get into uh, that question as as the discussion goes on. Justin, just uh, get us started here. How the heck are you today? First of all, I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. So do you want to tell us a little bit about Metropolis? I can certainly try. Metropolis is a science fiction film directed by Fritz Lang, written by Fritz Lang and Thea von Harbo. I think it's maybe important to explain uh, the world a little bit. So the world is kind of divided into two groups. There is the elite who who live above and they live, on, I guess, on the surface. And sort of the, the world is built up of these skyscrapers. And then there's the working class that lives below the surface and essentially operates the machines that run this world or make this world possible. It follows Freighter who is the son of Freydersin. Freydersin is sort of the, in a way, fascist leader of this dystopian world. Freyder is introduced to Maria when she uh, comes into this uh, pleasure garden that's, that's uh, I guess, part of the sort of the rich elite world. And this inspires him to go down to the workers' world to find her and discovers that there's this whole other world that he was completely unaware of. And the film is about him trying to fight for the rights of these people, also maybe find Maria and create a life with her. Is that an acceptable synopsis? <laughs> one of the biggest challenges that, and, and one of the reasons why I defer to you to provide the description of of Metropolis to our to the listeners is because there's a lot going on here, <laughs> and there's 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 a lot of different elements when it when it comes to the story. And before we go too much further, uh, you know any uh, any listener out there who's like sitting there yelling at their phone or you know whatever device that you're listening to us on. Uh, we both failed high school German, and I failed junior high German as well. So as we're talking about these characters, um, yes, I'm, I'm sure they were pronouncing their names all incorrectly. I apologize in advance. Well, yes, and I'm sure there was also a much better way to describe that film. And I, <laughs> I butchered a synopsis. But I'll be honest with you, I, I felt like this was a little bit of a daunting film. It's like this massive sort of epic groundbreaking special effects 
hugely influential, I guess, inherently political. And then there's like conflicting stories about the history, how it was made. And then there's like this complex, like never ending backstory about the film being cut down, then newly discovered footage, new restorations. And it's just a lot to, I think, process and talk about in a, I don't know, a meaningful way for me, I guess, great choice for our first episode. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, so one of the reasons why we we chose uh, Metropolis as as the first film, and I guess that falls on me a little bit more. I'll admit it; I've never seen Metropolis until going through and and watching it for this um, for this podcast. Uh, Justin, I know you had indicated you had previously seen it before this, but it had been a bit of time. Yeah, I I first watched it in I guess when I was going to college and I and I was at that point where I was starting to seek out different types of movies uh, but I wasn't that familiar with silent film and this is kind of one of those silent films you hear a lot about I joked earlier but it is considered a masterpiece and one of those like essential silent films I liked it at the time and but it's been more than 10 years and I I'll be honest there was a lot I did not remember. And I don't know what cut I had watched at that point either. So there's there's a couple things that we should probably talk about first before we really dive deep into the technical aspects of Metropolis. Uh, so first, um, you know, you've alluded to it and you've kind of touched on it a little bit. Uh, so, so the history and the story of Metropolis as it exists today is actually kind of interesting and it's one of the reasons that sort of drew me to this as as the first episode basically the original cut of metropolis was screened in germany uh lang was a german filmmaker of jewish descent basically it, the the film itself was at the time not very successful over time and over the course of various political issues, uh, World War II, Hitler's rise in in Germany, Nazi Germany. As the film got distributed across the world, there is, there's a lot of things that happened here. Um, cut down versions, lost footage, you know, just basically this sense that even to this day, what we see as far as Metropolis goes, it's probably not exactly Lang's vision. The version that Justin and I watched uh, was the Kino Lorber release that's titled, and I'm going to use air quotes on this, The Complete Metropolis. This is the same version that is on, uh, for people in the UK or people who who collect Masters of Cinema Blu-rays, this is the same version that's on that, that disc as well, but they just call it Metropolis. Same running time, same source elements. Kino likes to call it the complete, I guess, because Kino had released like four Blu-rays before this and needed to convince people to buy it again. <laughs> well, you're you're not wrong. The history sa- surrounding it to me was just incredibly interesting. And on that Kino Blu-ray, and we'll talk supplementals a, l- a little bit later, there's a documentary that kind of scratches the surface about all of the issues when it came to reassembling it. You know, when we talk about visuals and I guess even to an extent editing of the film, there's there's signs of age when it comes to Metropolis and and the prints that have been used. 
this new footage, I don't know, maybe 25 minutes of new footage is pretty damaged, but it is substantial to telling the story. It is a much different film with that footage included. Despite being called the complete, there's some points in the film where the footage is still missing. So at that point, an inner title pops up telling you essentially what happens in the film based off of the script that is still available. Uh, Alfred Abel plays Johan Frederson. And there's one sequence that I was really, really missing. And that's there. there's a confrontation later that takes place later in the film. And basically, we, we were given those the text indicating, hey, this is what happens in the sequence. It's a really pivotal and critical moment that I just I I felt like this was something that this film would be better for it if they had that footage. And and clearly they, you know, at this point they don't, you know, maybe in another 25 years, somebody comes forward. Oh, hey, you know, I found this in a garage sale or it it pops up on Pawn Stars or something. To me, that was like the one of those things where I'm like, I, I, I wish that we were able to see this sequence. And I think we'll kind of touch on that a little bit later. I, I want to kind of go back to your questioning to a degree. And, you know, I, I know you're doing it partially in jest, but I do think that you're being partially serious questioning, is it a masterpiece? I'm, I'm going to kind of challenge you here a little bit because personally, I, I look at this film, I, I would argue that this absolutely constitutes as being a masterpiece, maybe not necessarily for the film itself, but everything that came after it and how influential this film was. You know, you look at more recent modern day films, Blade Runner, Fifth Element, even uh, Japanese animation with Akira to, you know, like mad scientist films, uh, Frankenstein, things like that. You can see items and elements, stage design, visuals, cityscapes just basically ripped from Metropolis and like splashed onto these newer films. I have a list here. You had mentioned sort of the mad scientist. There's like a mad scientist archetype that exists now that I think has to have started here. The manic energy, the like gray sort of wiry. If I could jump in the also like a, a level of like the deformity, because when we first meet uh, Ratvang, you know, there's a discussion about his hand and how he lost his hand. So, you know, you have that element of, um, you know, maybe not exactly self-mutilation, but damage in a physical sense. Absolutely. And I think I think the obvious things are like Frankenstein. And, and this relates back to the science as well, which I'll get to in a second. So we have, I'd say Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, pretty much rips off the image completely. I mean, this leads into other things like, you know, obviously a film like Young Frankenstein is taking from Frankenstein, but the image of, of Frankenstein in Young Frankenstein looks a lot more like Rotvang than he does Frankenstein. I would say Doc Brown from Back to the Future somehow gets... And actually, as you were talking about this, I, I, that's exactly where my mind went because, you know, you, you have the, the stereotypical crazy hair. You know, I, I think that stereotypes generally start somewhere. So I think you're spot on with this. The prosthetic hand, 
I think is directly referenced in Dr. Strangelove. He's, he wears a black glove to represent a prosthetic hand, which is how they represent it in this film too. He's just wearing a black glove. The science element, using electricity as a, a shorthand for science or fringe science. This has become sort of a, a cliche as well. Electricity and there's like cutaways to like bubbling liquids and stuff. That shorthand for science is happening in the scene, look at the electricity and the bubbling water, kind of starts here. The ro- the ma- What do they call it? The machine man? The machine the, man, yes. Obviously is influenced uh, C-3PO and Star Wars. I would say cyber Cybermen and Doctor Who. You could even go into like Blade Runner um, and that element because you have yeah. uh, cyborg people that are walking around. Not just walking around, but can be mistaken for human. There's a big element in this film in which there's a mistaken identity where the real Maria and the machine man that now looks like Maria get mistaken for each other. And so the idea that you can't tell who's human and who's robot, the vision of the future, which is in Gotham City in Tim Burton's Batman, is very similar to this. Obviously, Blade Runner, you said Fifth Element. Yes. The thing with Fifth Element is the idea that there's these like multi-layers of flying vehicles like weaving in between buildings is almost directly from this where you see planes flying in between buildings i would say like robocop this became such a big thing in pop culture that there's music video influences here queen's radio gaga steals foot literally just steals the footage from this film yep and then madonna's express yourself which directed by David Fincher, if that means anything to anyone. The idea that a German film from the 1920s would somehow make it into a Queen music video and a Madonna music video is pretty crazy. You ask people what's the oldest film that they know, you know, cinephiles, I think, would probably say Metropolis. You know, clearly there's films that existed before this, but I think Metropolis is one of those earliest films that people can recollect or gravitate or focus on. You, you did you did a wonderful job explaining this story. I did an awful job. <laughs> no, you 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 did. It was it was it was uh you know for something as I guess I'd say complex or complicated as Metropolis, where it's not easy to sum it up. A story element really that exists throughout this film is the haves versus the have-nots, and clearly that sort of culminates in the third act and eventually you know what what happens you know there's there's a lot of religious elements the the tower of babel is referenced the story has a very significant haves versus have nots laborers versus upper class and you know that brooding underneath that anger that that discontent that exists i guess i guess this shows that this this will never change um, in my research, I came across some quotes from H.G. Wells critiquing the film, and I'm actually taking these quotes uh, from Fritz Lang's Metropolis, Cinematic Visions of Technology and Terror. H.G. Uh, H. Wells had said that it was this, the silliest film he had ever seen. Metropolis 
in its forms and shapes is already as a possibility, a third of a century out of date. And so the idea that he was saying here is that the idea that workers would be exploited and taken advantage of in this way is already become an obsolete idea. I think he used like developing cities in America as an example, that in order for these cities to evolve, and they have, workers will be empowered rather than sort of taken advantage of. That seems that seems silly, doesn't it? Well, it it does. And I mean, clearly hindsight is always 2020, but it's it's interesting to hear that and to know at the time, you know, Wells believed that. And I, I can't argue that some, you know, what somebody believes, but here we are, you know, the Metropolis is from 1927 and we're in 2022. Again, as we pointed out, the the themes are still right there. And there still is that that general feeling, I think, especially I and I I'd almost argue that maybe we're at a point in the country and we're not, you know, we're not going to get into political views here, but I do feel like, you know, the, the typical working class citizen probably still has feelings of this. There is a large workforce that is, is working for minimum wage or not much more. And the work they do isn't benefiting them. It's benefiting, you know, whoever's at at the very top, I feel like that's very similar to kind of what's being seen in this film. Now, this film does push it a little further and they dramatize it. And I think part of that is this film comes from a tradition of German expressionism, where the ideas are kind of stripped down to their most dramatic elements to get sort of the the idea, the theme or the point across. So we have to qualify why it's a masterpiece. I think it's it could, if, you, if you want to say it's a masterpiece because it's an important point in film history and because it is visually ambitious and really kind of invented a lot of techniques or inspired a lot of the techniques that were would be used for the next hundred years in cinema. I do have some issues with the story. Sure. Which make it for me, you know, not, not a masterpiece. <laughs> well, it makes it a film that if, if we're looking at Fritz Lang's filmography, I would say it's definitely not his best film and it's, Maybe not his best film from even this period. Let's go into the the production real quick of it, because I, I think that to understand um, some of the technical elements that we're going to dive into here, I, I think it's important to know that Metropolis was basically shot over the duration of a year and a half. For a film, a, a film of the time, that's an absurd amount of time. The booklet that is included with the Kino Lorber Blu-ray says over 310 shooting days and 60 nights. That's a, that's a long shoot. As I was going through and doing, you know, my research into it, you know, there's, there's a lot of details regarding some of the hellish conditions that uh, cast and crew faced on this. And, uh, you know, to an extent, it kind of seemed like Lang may have been a madman. He was very demanding. And he knew exactly what he wanted, and he expected to get what he wanted. One of the things that kind of stood out to me in the film, there's a sequence where the, you know, the underground dwelling where the laborers uh, reside. There was a underground flooding sequence. Over the course of that, they they shot that over 
uh, three weeks, the actors, including children actors, mind you, they're kept in the water at constantly low temperatures. Something like that in today's film world, it becomes so problematic. There's also producers having to get called in because of Lang just wanting things to be just right and people just getting angry, getting frustrated, wanting to walk off the set. Even a situation where there was concern that somebody was going to harm Lang because uh, because of that demandingness. It was budgeted at 1.5 million Reichsmarks. And the budget swelled to 5.3 million. Yes. So, I mean, that being a good example of a director who clearly has a vision and is not letting anything stop him from achieving that vision. Because, you know, money is one of those things that most of the time will stop someone from getting what they want. I don't think that there's any doubting for anybody that's seen Metropolis that there's a clear impact that this film had on Adolf Hitler. Being such a fan of the film, they offered to make Lang an honorary Aryan despite his Jewish background. Basically, after getting that, that offer, Lang fled Germany for Paris. So one day I got an invitation, meaning an order, to arrive at the Ministry of, Fee, of Propaganda. Goebbels sat behind a desk. Goebbels could turn on friendliness like a faucet. He came out, he stretched hands at Mr. Lang, I'm so very, very happy to see you here, come sit down. And he spoke and spoke and suddenly he said, the Führer has seen your films. And he has said, this is the man who will give us the national socialistic film. We want you to become the leader of the German film. In this moment, to tell you the truth, I was wet all over my body. Perspiration <laughs> broke out everything. And I was looking at the hands of the clock and they moved and moved and my only idea was how do I get out of here, get to the bank, get some money out of the bank and leave Germany. It would just be so interesting to be able to have a discussion with Lang I, I'm sure he wouldn't feel great about it, but to to have the discussion about the complicated history of how this film impacted so many people. I found some conflicting information. And so to add on to what you just said, there's also reports that he, he was offered a job to work for propaganda ministry because they liked this film so much. But I've also heard conflicting information about how and when he he fled for Paris and then eventually to America. Now, the interesting thing is his wife at the time, who co-wrote this film and also wrote the book, she had worked with Lang frequently. And after he had fled, she did make many Nazi propaganda films. So she kind of, she did the opposite of Lang. And that actually ties into some other information that I found Um and that was that she was a member of the Nazi party. I have come across a couple articles talking about whether whether Metropolis is actually a, a pro-Nazi film and whether Von Harbo intentionally included Nazi rhetoric or ideology, whether it happened intentionally, accidentally, or whether it's there at all. We will share these these sort of links in the show notes if anybody's interested in doing a little bit more research on that. I think it's worth noting. So I'm going to read... One more quote here from, this is also in the booklet that is included with the Kino Blu-ray. 
is this is Lang talking after massive cuts were made to Metropolis. And he said, I love films, so I shall never go to America. Their experts have slashed my best film, Metropolis, so cruelly that I dare not see it while I'm in England. This is in 1927 at a point in which he was happy with the film. There is a point in time where he says that he no longer likes the film. I mean, there has been reference to, you know, people criticizing the ending of the film as being a little simplistic or naive. And maybe he he bought into that a little bit and he changed his mind about that. I haven't seen Metropolis since a long time. When I made it, I liked it. When I finished it, I hated it. And for a very simple reason. Because the thesis of my wife, Thea von Harbu, that's a go-between, between capital, the brain, and the hand, workers should be the heart. I didn't believe it. The end was too easy. But I also wonder if a big part of him changing his mind on the film is kind of learning how much Hitler liked this film and how much, apparently, Hitler could relate to... The obvious comparison would be Frederson, the leader of this city. Mm-hmm. But from what I've read, Hitler actually related to Freider, his son, because he viewed himself as the mediator, the person who's going to unite Germany. So I wonder if those things maybe are the reasons why he changed his mind about the film. When we first started talking about Metropolis on this episode, we called it out that it is a very complex and challenging film and maybe not necessarily for for the film itself, but for eventually what it represents, what becomes inspired by it, good and bad. Uh, so let's get into the story of Metropolis, really this, I guess, young, naive, to an extent, sheltered man is kind of enlightened, explores and seeks out a world that he wasn't necessarily familiar with. And over the course of it, you know, he he realizes that what he has isn't what um, what everybody else has. And the film really displays him as good-hearted, good-natured over the course of the story. But it really does feel like there's a lot going on because not only do you have Freider's story, you have Rotvang and Johan, their conflict and the history there, uh, Maria, the workers, and it's, it's a lot. I actually have a few things, and these are the things that kind of make me kind of rate the film a little bit lower. I almost hate to admit this. I ended up watching it twice in preparation for this episode. The first time I watched it, just for the sake... You fell asleep. (laughs) The first time I watched it, it was for the sake of seeing this film, you know, something I've never watched before. And the second one was to go through for the sake of note-taking and just making sure that I'm prepared for our discussion. And I will say... That first watch of it was a struggle. I I did find myself, you know, starting to either nod off or fall asleep. There's there's now people like just turning off this podcast and they're like, who's this asshole? It, it's it's like the film's just trying to do too much. And because there's so many stories, things become a little 
tedious, I, I would say. And there are story beats and moments that I just feel kind of repeat themselves and aren't really advancing towards anything. One thing in particular, there's a moment when it's probably about like halfway through the film where Freder is in this church and he, you know, he's at this monument of death and the seven deadly sins. And I feel like a film that does have a little bit of, you know, being subtle. There are moments where it just beats you over the head. And I I think that there's those moments where it's like, maybe cutting down Lang's vision wasn't the worst thing. And I know that may be a bold statement, but... Another thing in the film that beats you over the head is this message of the mediator between the brain and the hands must be the heart. It's the heart, yes. It gives you that inner title card at the beginning of the film. Then there's characters say it throughout the film. And then, you know, they give you that big title card at the end, hammering home, this is the message of the film. So, I mean, that's another example where I do think, for the most part, the film is subtle, in, in, in the way it's telling its story and the themes it's incorporating. It's not always subtle with its imagery, but again, I think that goes back to the German expressionism present in the film. Is there a certain part of the film other than that church sequence where you felt like more so where it was maybe dragging when the workers start, start their uprise? I feel like that section of the film goes on a little too long. No, I I would agree with that. Um, I'm I'm a little bit more forgiving of that. The th- sequence or the element that I'm, and I, I really hate to put it this way, but I really couldn't have cared less about was when Freiderson dismisses his employee early in the film. Freider being there and being present for it, his reaction to it is, you know, hey, I need to, you know, be a champion for this person and I need to do, you know, I need to help him. And while I understand that character eventually serves, you know, some degree of purpose over the course of the film to an extent, I think the intention of it is to make Freighter come off as this noble person in this noble being but i think that there's plenty of other scenes or sequences that do that and do it more effectively for example when he relieves the worker who's collapsed or you know exhausted and takes over that that role to me i i felt like that was a better moment that conveyed what that character who this character is additionally even his leaving the uh, garden of the gods and going to the machine and seeing the horrors there i think that told you a lot more about who he was at that moment than trying to save or help this dismissed employee that moment is there for plot purposes. Do you think it needs to be, though? Because I, I feel like we can get through the entire story without that moment and that 
tertiary character. If I think about the most important role that character plays, it's two things. One is character and one is plot. The character element is Fraterson learns of an explosion in at, at the machines. He learns of that from his son, not from, what is this character's name? Yosefet. Yes. So Yosefet is Fraterson, the leader's right-hand man kind of thing. He's the guy who, in Fraterson's eyes, should be keeping Fraterson up to date on everything that's going on. When Fraterson discovers or learns of the explosion from his son, he's upset. Then he he learns of sheets of paper with this map on it. They discover it in the clothing of some of the workers involved in the explosion. And these plans are brought to Fraterson by another character. And Fraterson is then upset that those weren't brought to him by Yosefet. It's like two strikes. Because of that, he, he essentially fires Yosefet, correct? Correct. And so I think his, his role there is to establish what kind of character Fraterson is. He expects a lot from the people who work for him. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, you don't do it in the way you're supposed to do, he'll get rid of you. And they they talk about in the film that being dismissed by Fraterson is essentially the worst thing that can happen to you in this in this world. So I think it's to establish Fraterson as like a cold man who has no concern for other people, which is important for this journey, right? Yes. You're you're correct about that. For me, it just didn't work. And I I think that there were other ways that that could have been conveyed. And and I think that him telling the thin man to follow his son, I think that conveys that. When we're first introduced to Frederson, I, I think that comes across in just his introduction. The way he's shot and the way he's positioned he does come across as more of a cold, uncompassionate character. And to your point about this is the worst thing that could happen, to be dismissed by this man, it doesn't really amount to anything. Well, I was going to say the other reason for this character, Yosefat, is plot. But now that we're talking about it, <laughs> I realize it doesn't really matter. The, the scene I was going to bring up is the scene where the thin man goes to Yosefet's apartment and he discovers the worker's hat. And so this is the moment where the thin man discovers Raider was there. But now that I think about it, what purpose does that serve? Well, I'm, I'm actually asking if you know, what purpose does that serve? <laughs> I don't think it really does serve much of a purpose. I don't think this is a film that is really tightly plotted. I don't ever think that was the intention I do think there's a theme and a story and a big focus on visuals. I think it's also worth noting that the film focuses a lot on visual storytelling methods, and there's very few intertitles. It's only where it's absolutely necessary. I've seen some silent films where there's a lot of titles, and this is a film that it, it does try to resist that as much as it can. I did appreciate the lack of those title cards. So what what are some things that you had seen that didn't work for you? Why does Fraterson, Fraterson being the leader, why does he plot to, or why does he even allow 
the machines that power the city to be destroyed when he would theoretically need these machines and need these workers to maintain the city and therefore maintain his reign over it. So this was one of those elements that I found myself kind of putting together Johann Fredersen's motivations to an extent, because early in the film, Rotvang, you know, introduces this idea of the metal man that would eventually become this imposter Maria. My mind goes to, is Johann Fredersen using this as a way of kind of ushering in this new era of the metal man, the more controllable labor because with the way that Rotvang kind of explains that metal man, it would be a more controllable element than the humans that are doing the labor. So essentially this metal metal man would replace all workers. I mean, thematically that makes sense. I do think part of the film is that technology is part of our progression, us evolving as a species And then I guess maybe that there needs to be some sort of balance or something. But wouldn't it also be fair to say that maybe that the whole element of the metal man, human, uh, cyborg character, maybe I'm way out of line for saying this, but it really just doesn't feel like it belongs in this film. (laughs) And I know that's I and I know that's a bold statement because if you look at anything Metropolis, if you just Google Metropolis what is the imagery? It's the it's the city and it's the metal man robotic head. Having not experienced the film before, I was so surprised about how unimportant or how underutilized that element was. I would agree with you. And in my research, I kept seeing people when they're referencing this new restoration, that this new restoration adds in this element of the mistaken identity. The real Maria and the robot Maria are mistaken, both by the workers who are essentially rioting and by Freighter, who's trying to find Maria. And they all talk about how this new previously removed storyline adds so much to the story. And from my perspective, the mistaken identity thing is almost nothing. I, I don't understand. I don't necessarily understand why it's important to this story. So for me, that was actually also another moment that occurred in the film that I'm like, so I, I'm, I'm going to call them, oh, so that's happening moments. We just got to the Metal Man Maria, or at least the uprising workers got to the Metal Man Maria so quickly and easily. We have the sequence where they're chasing real Maria through the city, and they just happen upon Metal Man Maria or Imposter Maria. It just felt very convenient. And to me, it was, uh, oh, so that's happening now moment of the film. I want to read something else. These are the a couple of the intertitles from the film I had written down. So this first one is expressed as as a line of dialogue from Freiderson, and he's talking to the thin man, and he says, Whatever happens tonight, it is my express order to let the workers do as they will. Then there's some cross-cutting between them and, I think, Rodfang and the real Maria that he's captured. He's kind of like spilling his guts. Another thing maybe 
I don't know if this is where it started, but another thing where the villain expresses every motivation they have to the hero, which has been a common thing with the villains in movies for a long time. Um, what's his name? Rotvang. Rotvang says, Frederson wants to let those in the depths use force and do wrong so that he can be justified in using force against them. Now, I bring these two quotes up because to me, this seems like the film is telling us that Frederson is essentially creating a situation where the workers uprise and then he can use force against them to stop them. Rotvang reveals that the robot doesn't actually listen to Frederson's orders. She, whatever, only listens to him, him being Rotvang. What is Rotvang's plan here? If what we see is exactly what was just expressed, we see Metal Man Maria essentially incite a riot and start to destroy the machines. Rodvang acts like he has this secret plan that's going to destroy the whole city. So whose plan is it? And ultimately, my question is, if it's Frederson's plan, which it seems like it is, I have a problem with that at the end of the film, he's kind of just let off the hook for everything that happened. Rodvang becomes the, the fall guy, literally. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though? I, I, I So this is getting back to my main issue with Frederson. But then that leads to what is Rotvang's motivation for all these workers who just experienced this uprising and in a moment where they thought all their children were dead. Are they just so willing to forgive Frederson, not only for manufacturing this event, but also for just everything he's been doing for years, repressing them and forcing them to work under grueling conditions. So I, I have a couple things I want to touch on when it comes to this. So I, I think when you're looking at Rotving's motivation, I don't think that it's all that convoluted or even hidden. I think there's scenes early in the film where he makes it abundantly clear in regards to the love that he lost to Johann Fredersen. Uh, this woman was, uh, Line, son's name, Freighter. This woman that's Freighter's mother and just the conflict between those two and how Johann Freighterson moved on with life because he had something left. You know, he he had that son. While Rotvang, when he lost this woman, at the time he lost her, he didn't lose her to death. He lost her to Johan. You know, at that point, that was kind of his downfall. And I think that Rotwing's motives really were to just bring down Johan and to make Johan experience the loss that Rotwing's feeling. But Rotwing has a, a line in there about... Uh, Johan Frederson will lose his son. So I, I think that's kind of part of that motivation. It does kind of spin off into, I guess I'd say, a grander scale. At some point, the movie stops being about Rotvang trying to extract revenge on Johan Frederson, and it becomes about trying to create this downfall of Johan Frederson, neither of which really 
happen or come to pass. And and I'll say, if, if there's something that I was disappointed in when it came to this film, outside of this lack of Metal Man and how iconic it is and how little importance it is, I was disappointed how the film culminates in just this fist fight between Freighter and Rotvang. Because it feels like the film should be smarter than that. It's weird to me that it comes down to a physical confrontation versus a, a battle of wits or, you know, something else. When that fight sequence was occurring, I I felt very numb to it, honestly. It's a climax of a film that doesn't at all feel interesting or exciting or thrilling in any way. There's foot chases and there's like a burning at the stake and then there's some fighting. They're on top of a building or whatever. But at the same time, it's not exciting, I didn't think. And then it just ends. If I can just push you on this a little bit more, Rod Fang, what does he do? What does he, what does he bring to the film? Does he have any actions that impact the outcome of the film? Is that at all impacted by Rod Fang's actions? Well, I'd actually argue that he's the inciting incident of the film. Because everything that happens that leads to the conflict, it, it was rooted in Rotving. Maybe not directly, but sort of indirectly, because the workers uprise because of Metal Maria. You know, the, the sermon and preaching basically to kind of take up arms without Rotvang and without Rotvang kind of programming that and, and pushing that in that direction, we don't have the uprising. And admittedly, I don't think we have a movie. I think where you're going is maybe that Rotvang isn't necessarily a character and he's more of a, a plot device. But I'd also disagree with you on that because of all the characters, I actually found him the most interesting I was really drawn to his revenge motives and his desires. I found him actually to be a somewhat sympathetic character because he's the one who's kind of left out while Johan Frederson is successful and living in his ivory tower. Ratvang is still mourning and still in love with, with this woman that he lost twice, technically. He's consumed by that jealousy, that anger. It's it's all this perfect cocktail for revenge. And I just, I found myself very, uh, very drawn into him and that character. Imagine a scenario uh, in which I was hired to rewrite this film. Here's how I would do it. So the issue with Maria is that she is encouraging, well, she's bringing this awareness to all of the workers that there is this class divide. And although she's preaching peace, she is encouraging the workers to take action to make change. She's saying that someday there's going to be a mediator between the hands of the workers and the the brain, which is the leader, Freiderson. And so she's saying, just wait, because there's going to be a mediator. Freiderson 
has this plan to create this metal man version that looks like Maria to send her in. He sends her in and what her, her job is to do, her job is to say, there is no mediator. There, nothing's going to change. So then they go back to work. That's the plan. But Rodvang, because he is trying to punish Freiderson, has this alternative plan. And his alternative plan is to have the robot Maria incite an uprising by the workers, which is essentially what happens in the film. Rotvang actually has an impact on what happens in the final half of the movie. And then you actually don't view Freiderson as this awful person for, uh, even though he still is an awful person, but you don't, you don't view him as someone who's willing to kill people. The film is almost there, but the titles tell you that Freiderson wants to use force. And then because he wants to use force, I don't know what Rotvang brings to the table. It's just separating it like that, where they have different goals. Does that make sense? It, it does. I, I, I get where you're coming from. I, I'll be honest. I think this is going to be one of those moments where I don't think we're going to agree. And I don't know that we're going to, I don't think we're going to come to an agreement on this one because I, I do see Rotvang as more impactful and important than I think you do. From my perspective, Rotvang is responsible for introducing Freiderson to the Metal Man and obviously doing the science to make the Metal Man look like Maria. That's where his contribution ends. So before we move into the technical, there's just one last element that I want to talk as far as story or character really go. I found one of the things that was most disappointing um, about the film really was just how the film treats the Maria character, you know, and, and I think that really it comes up with the metal man, Maria. And, and I think that, you know, you've talked about how everybody kind of forgives Johan Frederson. All of the blame is placed on this metal man, Maria, this woman. And if we burn her at the stake, everything is good. You know, I, I think that there's 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 some interesting th- themes of man bastardizing good and a you know a, a wholesome positive message and kind of turning it on on its head for righteousness and for self gain. How Maria is used as this force for good and all of a sudden turned into this force of evil almost the scapegoat to get Johan Frederson out of being the villain to the workers is very problematic to me. So they capture what turns out to be the robot Maria. Correct. They essentially burn her at the stake. At that point, are they aware? They're certainly not aware that it's not a living person. Correct. They are not are do they are they under the impression that it is Maria? Yes. Yeah, so they're they're killing her and then it turns out to be okay because oh it's it's a robot. When um Yosefet tells Freider the story of what's happening at that club and there's this woman who's named Maria who's inciting violence, she's essentially turning men against each other and creating chaos, you know what I mean? The audience knows it's a, this robot who's just sort of, I guess, like a, a tool in this plan. 
but it does feel like it has this opinion of what women are and women are kind of dangerous and make good men turn on each other and best friends turning on each other. A woman comes between two men and that's the woman's fault. I mean, the film was made in 1926. I I hate to put this caveat on it, but you know, you, you do touch on it, the, the nature of the time and what was going on in the world and the world that it was clearly that has an impact. It can just become kind of problematic with, with that element and how quickly Johan Frederson is forgiven for all of his wrongdoings, how basically the film can just like switch blame so quickly and easily. I do think that is a problem with the ending for sure. And I do think women representation is a problem and well, this will be a recurring topic. In the end, the sort of wrap up, Freighter, the mediator, sort of guides their hands together. And then the film just ends. It acts like it's a happy ending. So I just feel like all of these potential issues are kind of just forgotten for the sake of fulfilling its theme. You're going to have to forgive me. What what was the, the theme again? Just in case it hasn't been made clear, the mediator between head and hands must be the heart. There is a band whose album is actually titled The Mediator Between Head and Hands Must Be the Heart. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> uh, Sepultura, if you're listening, nice work. Let's get into some of the the technical aspects. But before we uh, break down some of the technical aspects, on the Scene by Scene podcast, we're going to be talking about uh, the visuals and camera work, uh, lighting, sound and music, editing, um, and then we'll kind of talk about some performances. And that's how we're going to kind of break this down. Um, But before we do, I'm going to kind of provide a caveat regarding this discussion surrounding Metropolis. When it came to editing, I found myself maybe being a little bit more forgiving and a little bit more laxed on some of my critiques because of the the difficulty and troubles that that occurred with like restoration and the film originally being lost and how you know this film is basically just being pieced back together. When it came to editing, I, was, I found myself being a touch more forgiving about that. You know, the way that this restoration worked and a way a lot of restorations work is that when you're piecing it together from multiple sources, you don't always know exactly what shot follows what shot. And it's even more complicated in this film because there's discussion that there were multiple camera negatives. The camera negative being the ultimate source that you're going to strike prints from, and those prints will go off to theaters, and that there were multiple camera negatives with different takes. And so who's to say what Fritz Lang's director's cut is or whatever? And because they're piecing it from all these different places, you know, things aren't necessarily always the way they were. But this has the original music, which is not always the case with films this old. Thank you. 
use that music to help guide the editing. You can kind of see that in moments. The actions match up with the music or the cuts match up with the music really well. I don't have a lot to say about the editing. I have a little bit to say. So before we dive into the editing, let's let's talk about the visuals and let's talk about the camera work and, and what we saw there. So for me, and I'll kind of get us started here if that's okay. Uh, for one, for me, one of the biggest joys I had watching this movie was watching things play out in in wides and masters. You know, when we talk about new or modern films, just personally discussions that we haven't had on a podcast, but you know, I, th- I think that we've both felt that the art of letting things play out in wides is is basically become extinct. Yeah. So I, I found I, f- I actually found a great deal of joy in in seeing that and seeing just um, even two shots. There are foreign films that use two shots. In American film, the two shot is completely dead. You do still see masters that maybe linger a little bit longer in modern American films every once in a while. But then when they cut in, it's close ups. It's over the shoulders. I'm sure I could be proved wrong here, but I don't remember the last time I saw, you know, a traditional two shot in a modern American film, which I think is sad because two shots can work really well for a lot of different scenarios. So kind of going back to to this, something else that I, I, I was really just loving was how much action played out in Wides and Masters. There's a sequence... Uh, basically like maybe halfway through the film where Rotvang is chasing Maria, real Maria, human Maria. And uh, there's a sequence where she's like, just like going door to door. And, you know, the, the camera's like panning with her, uh, if I'm not mistaken. I don't remember there being a cut. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But basically, you know, it was still a mostly wide shot. On the street or in the like the catacombs? In the catacombs. That's a scene that's striking on a lot of levels. We could have a discussion about the lighting in that scene. But yeah, I, I think you're correct. For me, that was like one of the most visually appealing scenes. But let's back up because there was some imagery that I found just incredibly haunting. Um, it's very early on in the film. It's the workers marching. It's them going in and out of basically like their workspaces, you know, getting on the elevators. There was something just something just very beautiful about the look of that sequence, but also just uncomfortable. That just works so well for me. And you're talking about that that moment right at the beginning. Correct. It's right at the beginning of the film. Well, that's one of those moments where I talk about like just purely visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. Because we start out down below and the workers, we essentially have one group going, one going in, one going out, assume, assuming one is leaving and one is coming to work. The way it's framed, it starts off very symmetrical, straight on. There's very like, there's right angles. It's very sort of rigid. Uh, it does break that as it cuts around, but it's a great first image. And then just the idea of, the idea that people going into work look just as exhausted as the people leaving work is a great visual way to tell you that these people are being overworked and being taken advantage of. And then they immediately cut to what's going on 
on the world above. And that first scene is them running on that track. The contrast of them slowly marching versus the people running. And if I could actually jump in on that imagery as well, and that contrasting imagery, you see, you know, you you have that wide, that master in the Garden of the Gods, but the next shot that you see is Freighter smiling and elated and happy. And it is just such a, you know, juxtaposition from what we were just exposed to. And again, I think lighting, you know, this is... We're going to kind of lean into lighting a little bit here, but just the contrast of the the Garden of the Gods and just how bright and playful and the energy there versus the worker city. To me, like visually, that sequence all just works so well. So just the idea that there's this group of people who, who can barely walk and then there's this group of people who's running for fun. The film doesn't even have to tell you which which group is which in terms of one being the workers, one being the sort of the elite. And it doesn't even have to tell you that the world is separated into these two groups. Visually, just by putting those two those two scenes together, you get it. By juxtaposing those together, everything is said just through images going back to the kind of the lighting and stuff, the other big thing with that that first scene, you see them running on the track, is you see the sky, which I think skies are kind of important. I have another example of where, why I think a sky is important in this film, but in the worker's world, there is no sky. You have a, essentially have a ceiling above you at all times. Why don't you uh, kind of go into that other sequence or that other moment where the sky is important? There's a moment after uh, Freighter goes down to the the worker city, the machine room or whatever, and he sees the explosion and he he runs on his way to see his father. And that is the moment where we get those city shots. It's a couple of shots where these skyscrapers fill the entire frame from the top to the bottom. And you have no sky in the shot. And so you have planes maneuvering between the buildings something we normally associate with flying high in the sky is going between buildings. So this tells you how high those buildings are. And then we cut to the tower in which Freiderson sort of operates and we get sky in that shot. So it's saying as, as high as these all these other skyscrapers are, this is even higher, both physically and in terms of power. And it's kind of interesting that you you bring up how we move into that office with uh, Johan Frederson. And it's interesting to me because clearly, you know, he is sort of at the top of the world and he has that sky. And what does he do? He he closes the curtains. So it's it's just interesting to me, too, that he has access to the sky and just the fact that it's... For him, that it's just something that can be easily shut out or closed out. If you notice, the curtains are open. And then he closes them before someone enters. And he closes them before Grot, the, the, like the leader of the workers, the guy who brings him the plants. So not only is it this thing that he just takes for granted that he can turn on and off as, as he pleases and not even think about it, but he closes the curtains right before he has a worker, someone who lives in the worker city below comes in. 
almost like he doesn't want that worker to be aware of that outside world. He's hiding from them essentially what he's keeping from them. I I think it speaks to how much thought Lang put into a lot of stuff, which, which again, we're, we're past the story element, but thus making certain story issues be more problematic because there's so much thought and care given to something like the sky and like light and the decisions that are made there. The next thing I'd, I'd like to touch on as far as visuals with the film go, and it's maybe a little bit more production design, but Rotvang's house, you see the, the grand scale of the city and you have these skyscrapers and these highways that are hundreds of feet in the air. And then at the heart of the city is this shack. Again, it's just so, to me, the visuals there are just so interesting compared to everything else that we're seeing. Yeah, it's a completely different architecture style. And I would say in terms of filmmaking, Rotvang's house and like the catacombs and stuff, I think that's the stuff that's closest to the German expressionism. It sort of emphasizes, I guess, artificiality. It's not striving for like realism. It's more a feeling or a mood. So it's it's completely different. And I think that is one of the most powerful sort of visual storytelling tools is contrast. The way you can contrast Fraderson's office and the tower in general with the house, which is very like short. It's it's an interesting decision too, because you know, you you have Johann Fraderson living in in the tower, some of the dialogue and discussion when Frederson and Rotvang, when we first see them meet in the film, you know, you get a, get a sense of a lot of history and how Johan uh, Frederson kind of has this trust in Rotvang about him as as an inventor and a, and a creator. And yet here's Rotvang living closer to the workers than up in the sky with the elite. I thought that was great because even without meeting Rotvang and before we even see him as a character, this told me everything I needed to know about him just based off of where he lived and and the look of that house. What are some some visuals that you liked or, you know, things that kind of stood out for you? You want to talk about camera movement a little bit? Obviously, made in a time period where camera movement was more complicated than it is now. And I don't think this film has a lot of camera movement. There's moments where the camera kind of follows people as they're walking, essentially like the walk and talk kind of setup where it pulls back as they approach the camera, which is interesting. We don't really know what they're saying. Even in that scene where they do that, I don't even think there's any intertitles. There are moments where there is camera movement. There's two that are really interesting to me. The first being... After the revolt and the the heart machine or whatever is destroyed or damaged, and so the worker city is being flooded, Freighter and Maria, I think it's maybe after they're escaping from Rotfang, but there's that camera that's essentially attached to a swing, and they let it go, and it swings up. So the camera approaches the characters, and then it obviously, because it's a swing, it goes above their heads, and then it kind of comes back. It's like the camera's dramatically and quickly pushing in on the characters. And then all of a sudden the characters go out of frame and then the characters come back in the frame and then the camera pulls back. And it's this moment 
where they're trying to sell this idea that the ceiling that's above them is kind of collapsing. I think it's very rare that you see camera moves that will purposely not frame your characters correctly. And there's little concern for that because it's all about just the feeling that it creates. Selling this idea of chaos as everything's falling down around them and everything's flooding. The other one that comes up when you talk about movement that I actually really enjoyed, and it was kind of a, a unique shot, I, th- I felt, where Freighter, in his search for Maria, I want to say, had like an article of her clothing uh, at the base of a door. And there's like that really quick push in, and it's kind of this uh, weird shot where it's his hand and arm kind of tracking that in to grab the article of clothing. So it's almost like a point of view shot, but I think your eye is aware that the perspective is wrong. Yes. That's the other shot I'm talking about. Okay. I, when I said I had two, it's essentially just a dolly being pushed and he's, the actor is on the dolly with the camera and just reaching his arm around the camera lens. And they push both him and the camera towards the door. It's a shot that comes out of nowhere because it's totally unlike anything else in the film and totally unlike anything else in that scene but it somehow just makes sense. Yes. At first, I actually like backed it up so I could rewatch that cuz at first I'm like, whoa, like I'm you know, I'm I'm thrown off and it was a very jarring thing because it's something that happens once in the film, you don't see it happen again, nothing happened like that before it. I felt thrown off until I rewatched it and I'm like, wow, you know, this is unique and I'm I'm really into it. If you go to film school, or you're making a film today, you know, people will tell you or people will ask you, like, what is the motivation of this camera move? Because every camera move needs some motivation. Don't move the camera for no reason. And this, you know, particular shot, not only does the camera move, but it moves in such a flashy way that it is un- inherently jarring. From my perspective, it's, it works. If I was forced to come up with a reason why he chose to use that shot. I'm not sure I would have a good reason, but I feel like it still works. I've been thinking about this shot because this one's kind of stood with me. In that moment, I felt like there's just an extra sense of urgency and there's an, an added element of tension. But it also added like almost a level of uncomfortableness. And, and I think that that helps like kind of puts you a little bit more in Freighter's mindset and feeling in that moment. I suppose when you see the, the cloth, you're unsure, is that cloth going to be connected to her? And if it is connected to her, does that mean she's dead on the ground or something? So in that way, your explanation makes perfect sense, that it can create that suspense and that sort of uneasy feeling because you don't know what you're going to find at the end of that cloth when he gets to it and he pulls it up. The last like visual element to me that really just kind of stood out and it takes place during that flooding sequence. And it's, um, you know, as the worker cities flooding freighter, Maria and Yosefet um, are leading these children. And there's like this staircase and there's like all these little arms and hands kind of reaching up all around uh, Freighter and Maria. To me, like, again, just another really powerful image. There's so much space and and the fact that it's like taking place in this in this wider shot and the number of arms and hands kind of like coming up, it's just unsettling imagery 
with like that rising tide and, and the water coming up. I found it unsettling, but gorgeous at the same time. I have like a couple other things, maybe one thing that kind of leads into editing. Do you have anything else you want to talk about? Uh, no, because my next couple of things really focus on like the lighting of the scene. So let's do your final thoughts on visuals and then we can move into editing. The other thing I think is interesting is there's that scene where Freighter and Maria have just met in the catacombs. That is the scene where they talk and they ultimately kiss. And I don't know if this is even something you find interesting, but there's a frequent crossing of the line. The only reason I find this interesting, this is not the only scene that does that, but this is, the I think, the best example is, and it may be because he was shooting with two cameras, where he had a camera on each side of one character. But the point being is there's no consideration for it in the sense that it doesn't matter. I don't watch the scene and think it doesn't work. It's just another one of those film school, quote unquote, rules that I think is worth understanding. But I think this is an example of when it ultimately doesn't matter. It doesn't affect the scene. I don't think the scene was any worse because of that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, actually, I know the sequence you're talking about. And to be honest with you, I noticed it. But at the same time, I'm I'm watching for stuff like that as I'm going through. It was a little bit more noticeable to me on the second watch. But that's because, again, I was watching it with more of an analytical eye. My first watch, I didn't notice anything significant about it. And I, I thought that the scene played out very well regardless. So uh, if I want to echo something that you said, also having gone to film school, there's so much of this focus. And I've been on film sets as a cinematographer where they say, well, you're, you're going to break the line. You know, you're, you're crossing the line. And in the reality of it, I don't think it mattered as much here or in certain other instances. It's a good rule of thumb, but rules are made to be broken. Yeah. There's one small little scene that I really liked that I'll just talk about really quickly. And this kind of leads into the editing. Freighter switches clothing with one of the workers. And so now one of these workers in Freighter's clothing is told to meet up with Yosefet at, I guess, his house or whatever. And he's essentially in a cab. And there's this moment where these flyers advertising that club where all these elite people go. He picks up the flyer. We get a close-up of the flyer with the club name. And then we get, I guess, what he's imagining is there for him. And it's this multiple exposure shot. I think it's important to note that all of these multiple exposure shots, which there are many, were all created in camera. You get these shots of drinks being poured. You've got someone playing the piano. There's like a roulette wheel and then like women dancing and then ultimately like a guy and a woman kissing. And it's like all of these things that happen at that club and all that information is conveyed in, I don't know, three seconds in a visual way, in a way that looks visually appealing. But it's also just economical in handling information in a short amount of time. But it also at the same time feels, it feels like you're inside someone's mind, feel like it's working on all these ways. And then he hands that flyer to the driver. The driver takes the flyer. And then we get a close-up, essentially a POV of the driver. The flyer, and we have in the background the steering wheel and his hand on the steering wheel. And he looks at the flyer, and then you just see the driver turn the steering wheel to the right. I love that shot. And it may seem a little silly, but that shot tells you exactly where he's going. And it tells you 
he's going there now. But today, I mean, if you were going to make that, the urge would be to get a shot of a car driving down a street, and then you see the car turn to the right. And so, oh, I know that car is turning and now headed to the club. A close-up tells you the exact same information, and it stacks that information, foreground, background, in a really visual, interesting way. And it just shows you you don't need like these establishing shots or these exterior shots showing the car driving. We get that the car is turning and headed to the club from one little movement of the driver's hand. This would be a good moment to kind of move into editing because you hit on actually one of the highlights for me when it came to the editing of this film. That idea of what is going on in the club and, you know, you you have three different women, uh, the gambling. And again, you know, you touched on it yourself. All of this had to be done in camera. This wasn't a, hey, let's go into post and add all of these things. In these days, the labs in, 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 in Berlin didn't exist like they exist here. For example, you couldn't say, no, I would like to have this and this, put it into the lab. The people of the lab will do it. We have to do it in the camera. There were no opticals, in other words. I had a very, very good cameraman, Günther Ritter, who was, in his way, a genius. You know, he is responsible for the change of the girl into the robot. And I told him, look, I remember there is a shot where you see the girl sitting and slowly a part of her becomes metal and the other part is still living. I didn't want to have a straight dissolve from a living person into a robot. Slowly, you know, a leg changed and it came back as an other leg and then again. It just shows how different, you know, cinema is today versus back when this was made because, you know, you, you had to work harder for it and you had to do things differently. Well, and and it required thought. Yes. You had to know that you wanted to do that on set. Today, that could be an afterthought. The sequences that that happens, you know, you brought it up, you know, as the worker kind of escapes from underground. And another element that I really liked about that was, you know, you you talked about how it conveyed information. I also found like there's an element of an overwhelming nature as that was all happening, because even though those shots are on screen for a decent amount of time, you're on to the next thing a little bit quicker. So for the time, it is quicker cuts than anything else that's happening in the film. The other moment that kind of had that same feeling was when it was the metal man, Maria, dancing and just how those sequences were cut and sped up. Those sequences just felt very frenzied and I I think really conveyed a sense of what's going on in, in the club and just the feverishness of it. There is some crazy imagery with the multiple exposures because that shot of the eyes, I mean, that could give someone nightmares, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Generally, there are two types of editing. There is scene editing within a scene, shot to shot within a scene. And then there is scene to scene editing, cutting from one scene to the next scene. And I think sometimes people 
kind of underestimate how important scene to scene editing is. And some people maybe just think, well, that's that's in the script or something. And sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. There's one example in this film that I think works really well. Frederson is talking to Rotvang and he says, we've been finding these plans in all of the, in the pockets of workers. And then it immediately cuts to Freider, his son, operating the, the machine, the clock machine. And he, you know, reaches into his pocket and he discovers the note. And so it seems really simple. Like cutting from them talking about them finding it to Freider, which is, this is a big part of Freider's journey, to him finding it. It seems simple, but it really could have easily not happened that way. It could have been overlooked. That is a scene-to-scene cut that works really well. And that starts a cross-cutting sequence that I think works really well, where Frederson, Rotfang are trying to discover what is this plan to, or where does this map go to, whereas the workers are being collected and going down to the catacombs. So they cut to them trying to looking through books, trying to figure out where it goes, then the workers on their way down, cross-cutting back and forth until they meet in the catacombs and it's all the characters meeting up together. That is where Maria, Freider, Freiderson, and Rotving all come together. So it's all this cross cutting and they all come together. This is something that's, this is just part of filmmaking now, but in 1926, the, that is still pretty early in film history. And the idea of film editing was still pretty young. The fact that they were able to cross cut in this way and have it all kind of come together in this really important scene, I think works really well and is kind of pretty amazing for a film from 1926. You think about that cross-cutting, and if this film was made today, or if this film was made into like a limited series or something like that, I have a hard time believing that that sequence would play out this way regarding that cross-cutting. It would probably be like Freighter being told or you know that information given like verbally through dialogue or something of that nature versus actually using imagery to convey this and and to communicate what's happening yeah and well there's also the possibility that you follow one person's perspective let's say you follow Freiderson and Rotvang's perspective and they go down to the catacombs and on their way down they discover that there's a meeting happening Maria is speaking to all the workers or you follow Freider's perspective and he's walking with these other workers and he gets to this place and then halfway through the scene they reveal that they reveal to the audience that they're being watched by Freiderson and Rodfing so there's other possibilities and I feel like the cross-cutting just makes that scene work in a way that cutting in any other way wouldn't I do agree that it probably would be done differently if it was being made today. And it feels a little silly to praise just simple cross-cutting, but there's a reason I praise it is because I don't see it done well a lot today, and it's done really well in a film from 100 years ago. That's really all I have to say about the editing. I agree that there's some some stuff that feels a little bit messy, and I feel like some of it is the result of all of these prints being cobbled together. And I, I don't, I don't want to undercut the positives that that we've kind of called out here there's just certain moments and certain scenes where it feels like this scene ended but then the next time we're with characters it feels like we're still in the middle of that action Rotvang and maria 
you know, the sequence that I, I really like where he's chasing her out of the catacombs. They have really unique lighting uh, that's going on in that in that scene. But then the next time we cut to them, it feels like that chase is still going, but it doesn't make sense that it would. So I think the other really visual element that I have a little bit to say something about is the lighting. The lighting of one scene really stood out. Well, actually, there's there's one little moment I'll get to real quick. And it's the moment where Frederson is essentially sitting at his desk at night. We do get a, a shot of the city with the neon lights and everything. And there's that shot of him sitting in the dark, but with the light sort of playing on his face. I think that's an interesting shot. I, I think it's probably a overall bigger element because, you know, we, we talked about the age of the film and how things had to be thought out a lot more and a lot more in depth. And they shot on black and white and you had to light a lot differently for black and white than you do today, um, even to just like desaturate color. So I, I think lighting is such an interesting element to this film. The way that they use lighting, it conveys a lot of different a lot of different feelings and and it tells you a lot about the characters you know it kind of goes back to some of the visual elements we talked about the sky for the wealthy how well those those characters are lit when we first meet johan Frederson, the lighting stood out to me because there was a dark element to him even though it's a lit room the way that he's lit it's doesn't match what should be in that scene. And there's a number of sequences like that to me where kind of going back to like crossing the line and the film school techniques of, you know, something that people always pushed is where is this light coming from? Look no further than when Freder is in the catacombs and Maria is giving her speech and talking about how, the mediator between the head and the hands is the heart and who will be your mediator. The way that the light kind of washes over Freighter in that scene, clearly there, it didn't need to be subtle at that moment, but the way that that communicates and just like gives you that information. I, I thought overall the way that they lit it is just pretty tremendous for the time. The other scene that I think is certainly flashy it's certainly stylish i i think i do think it sort of the expressionism elements in it is the catacomb scene where rot vang is chasing maria yes and so she's walking with a candle and clearly she's not being lit by that candle but it does feel like she is yes it actually feels sort of natural you know her face is lit her i guess her whole upper body is lit but you still have this dark background he starts chasing her and there's essentially this just the spotlight, which I guess is his flashlight, but it's just this spotlight that like follows her as she's trying to escape. And as a result, we're getting really strong shadows on the walls and really harsh light in her face at times. During this period and more so after this period, you know, you would light women in a way that highlighted their features in a way that they looked their best. And this is a film that like at a moment, shines this light so bright in her face that it's blown out. And so as a result, it's not flattering at all, but it is very much getting into her state of mind in that moment. I know you have things to say about this scene. I'm kind of geeking out because this was, to me, 
when it came to the lighting of the film. To me, this was the best sequence. The way that that flashlight that Rotvang has is used to just kind of build on the tension that's occurring in that scene. You know, Maria's running from this light and the light is the danger. I thought that was great. And then the way that the light would also expose the potential consequences if she's caught. Oh, yeah. You know, with the, with the skeletons, the skulls, not just great imagery, but just fantastic use of that lighting to amp up and, and ramp up the tension. We say this is a science fiction film, but in this one scene, it becomes a horror film, both in terms of the danger, a woman being chased by a man, which is a common theme in horror films, but also in the style, the technique, the location. So I I don't personally have a lot to say about the performances, but I know you have something you want to say. I actually really enjoyed the casting overall. Freighter really did come into this this role as sort of that, like a, a level of naivety to that character. And I instantly bought his performance just between when we first see him running the race, him being enamored with Maria when Maria brings the children up and, you know, says, these are your brothers, to the point where he's in the... Moloch machine and his reaction and response to that. I really, really enjoyed the different range that he really had to kind of go through. He portrayed that really well. And especially like in a time where clearly there's not dialogue to express those feelings or to say those things, but to just emote. I really want to call out Bridget Helm, who played Maria slash the metal Maria. It's it's always challenging for an actor to take on two different roles. I thought she did a really nice job of that. And clearly there was makeup to help distinguish the two different ones. But the sinister metal Maria, I thought, worked really well. But there's also like that kindness to her that you really believed the real Maria. That was just fantastic for the time. And I, and I, I thought she did a phenomenal job. She does a lot of things with her face that really distinguish the two characters. I can't imagine that being, being easy, especially since we're watching a silent film and so much of it is going to be facial expression and movement People are watching you. They're not listening and watching. They're just watching you. I'll take it a step further because, you know, you talked about her facial expressions and the way that she emotes. But also, like, if you, if you watch the way that she moves between, you know, the Metal Maria and, you know, regular Maria, there is a difference in her overall body language and her, her movement. And the last thing I'll, I'll say about performances... We talk about elements of Metropolis that you can still see to this day. A character like the Thin Man played by Fritz Rosp, it's still iconic to this day, and it's something that is still prevalent. Maybe he wasn't the first person to play a character like this. I'm sure he's not. There is something unnerving and unsettling about him from scene to scene. I will say I just wish he had more to do. Well, and he has more to do in this version than any other version. You can always tell 
what footage is new to this version because it is so heavily damaged. A lot of his scenes are new to this complete Metropolis version. Joe, do you have any final thoughts or takeaways from Metropolis? And would you recommend it to anyone? Let me start by saying it is it is actually going to be a tough recommend. I think it's going to be a tough one to recommend overall. I will say that Metropolis is an important film. It heavily influenced a lot of current day cinema. For that purpose, I would recommend it. I do think that lovers of cinema and uh, cinema history are, are going to find a lot more with Metropolis than an everyday person who likes to go to the movie theater on a Friday night. It's a recommendation for me with some caveats. I did like it, but it is a film that even I don't know that I would go back and revisit anytime soon. So final thoughts on Metropolis from Justin. I think it's an important film. I think it's an influential film. It's a good film, but I don't think it's flawless. I guess I'll categorize it as a masterpiece for what it gets right. I don't think I had any complaints technically or visually. All my complaints were story. I think it gets a lot right, and it's a masterpiece for its visual vision and all of the crazy techniques that went into it to make that possible and for the impact it had on films and pop culture. I think the film's worth worth watching. I would recommend it to fans of film history and film preservation. I would say watch the film and if you can get your hands on the documentary, which the documentary is called Voyage to Metropolis, which it's on the Kino Lorber disc. I believe it is available on the Masters of Cinema disc as well and maybe available other places. But I'd say watch that documentary too. That'll give you little information about the restoration. And I also would recommend it for filmmakers if there happen to be any filmmakers listening. I think there's a lot to learn about visual storytelling, the little shorthands that can come in handy when you know trying to convey information quickly. I think there's a lot to learn from the way Lang stages scenes. And I think it's worth going back and looking at the films that did it first, the films that inspired everything else. And and maybe there's something that can be learned from the films that started it all. Sometimes things are sort of dropped or degraded through that inspiration process. And there might be something you can still learn from Metropolis. 19, take one, A and B camera, common markers. I personally think that I made my films with a kind of a sleepwalking security. I did things which I thought were right, period. All right, Justin. So uh, tell the audience what's coming up for scene by scene. It's my turn to pick. Then Joe will pick the next episode. Whether that be I'm picking a film I want to see or I'm picking a film that somehow Joe has avoided for many years. Those are the two options so far. And that, that might sort of evolve. But so coming soon, a Serbian film. Have you seen a Serbian film? No. Oh, (laughs) surprisingly i have not either (laughs) Uh, okay okay. i'm gonna add that to the list of possibilities but like we said uh at the top of the show metropolis was joe's pick so i am picking for the next episode and i have chosen maholland drive directed by david lynch it's a film that i've seen before Joe has seen it before as well, so I guess I'm breaking all the rules already. But it's a film I would want to revisit. And 
correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, you're, you're not necessarily a big fan of David Lynch as a filmmaker. It's not that I'm necessarily not a fan or a fan. So to be honest, David Lynch is a little bit of a blind spot for me. I have seen Mulholland Drive. It's been quite some time. Um, I've seen Elephant Man and uh, Firewalk with me. A uh, lot of films of his that I have not caught. I do think that this is one that I'm I'm excited for us to you know to revisit, to watch, and to discuss. And uh, hopefully, in our next episode, uh, we can clearly define what Lynchian means. Yes, that is the goal. But yes, um, I did. I did pick this film knowing that he's kind of a blind spot for you, and I knew that. Of course, I did pick a film by him that you have already seen. I just feel like this is the one I want to revisit, and this is one that you know people typically name as one of his best films. So join us next time for that discussion of David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Thank you for listening to Scene by Scene. You don't have to look at the set anymore. I mean, the movie's over. Your movie was over. That's what you said. There's nothing going on uh, in movies right now. Great movie, huh? So refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies. Have you seen a lot of movies here? What are you so crazy about movies for? Obviously, they don't watch enough movies. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Do you have any experience in motion pictures? Quite a bit of experience. I'm a active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie. Sorry, can we cut? Still rolling. You know no, not still rolling. Cut, 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 cut. Cut and cut! Yeah, great work, everybody. That's a wrap.